service to the finest crew in Starfleet. Engage. Welcome to The Greatest Generation, a Star Trek podcast by a couple of guys who are a little bit embarrassed to have a Star Trek podcast. I'm Ben Harris. I'm Adam Pranica. Ben, I've been feeling lately like something is missing from my oh, life. Oh no. You got an Iris Stephen Bear shaped hole in your soul? <laughs> yeah, I just, uh, <laughs> I sit in the dark and then I look in the corner and then I see Iris Stephen Bear like hold his hands out. <laughs> and in those and when hands, there was only one set of footprints. It was because Iris Stephen Bear was carrying you. Yeah. When when I couldn't get a word in edgewise, it was Iris Stephen Bear cutting me off. <laughs> it's good to see you all in church. It's called the Bible. That's the way God wants it. I don't know why, dude. All these questions is a little blind faith too much to ask. Uh, it's been a while since we've done a uh, Deep Space Nine Bible study, Ben, and uh, being that this episode is so Miles O'Brien-centric, I thought I might read to you from the chapter about him. Wow. I like this uh, I like this liturgical turn to, to, to get to the bottom of this character. All right, Ben, here is the reading. Miles O'Brien. O'Brien has been the transporter chief on STTNG for five years. This assignment represents a promotion to master chief of operations and a tremendous career opportunity for him. He's an Irishman, a mansman, (laughs) with a down-to-earth quality. He's organized, efficient, and smart, and knows the hardware as well as any man in the fleet. He loves his work. He has a wife, Keiko, and a three-year-old baby girl, Molly. He will be in charge of the comings and goings of vessels, plus the nuts and bolts maintenance of the station. He's constantly frustrated by the jerry-rigged way this thing is put together. <laughs> the comings and goings thing, I feel like they don't, they kind of got, they kind of went astray from, right? I, never, I don't get the sense that he's like... Yeah, he's not like the got, greeter like Riker was. No, and he's, and he's, not, he's not like air traffic control either. Like, I feel like Dax and Kira are often doing that work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there are a lot of differences between the show Bible uh, character outlines and what we get in the show. I think that's a good example of that here. Well, I mean, and I think that that's, like, something that's interesting about the difference between TNG and DS9. is like that show Bible basically worked... For D- TNG like all the way through but mm-hmm. you write a show bible at the beginning of Deep Space Nine and it's out of date at this point yeah. in a lot of ways yeah like the characters have changed this is this is the King James version <laughs> stuff done changed uh, before he joined the crew of the Enterprise he served aboard the USS Rutledge along the Cardassian border during territorial disputes that led to bitter fighting. He saw Cardassians commit unspeakable atrocities and lost close friends in the massacre at Setlik Three. The war changed him, hardened him. First man he ever killed was a Cardassian who jumped him on patrol. Wow. As he tells the story to another Cardassian in the STTNG episode, The Wounded, he says, I'd never killed anything before. When I was a kid, I would worry about having to swat a mosquito. It's not you I hate, Cardassian. 
I hate what I became because of you. Yeah, so ends the reading, Ben. I like that, that that's a quote that we, we have come back to many times, and I like that that's in the, in the Bible. That makes me feel like us bringing it up was intentional on the part of the writers. I would say that the idea of hard O'Brien is in dispute up until now, but maybe this episode will do something about that. You want to just get into it, Ben? Let us get into it. As we talk about Deep Space Nine Season 4, Episode 18, Hard Time. Do you realize how incredible this is? <laughs> no, of course you don't. It's old Brian, Adam. Not O'Brien, it's old Brian. It's Unabomber O'Brien. <laughs> It is uh, it is spider hole Saddam Hussein O'Brien. <laughs> <laughs> How long do you think it would take for your hair and beard to get this way? Because we are told this is twenty years of O'Bri- of O'Brien aging to get uh, to get the Moses look. I think I could probably get there in twenty years. It'd probably take you like forty or fifty, <laughs> right? It would take me twenty years to get to your five o'clock shadow. <laughs> it just seems like it's weird for me to watch the scene and think of it as aspirational. Yeah, yeah. It's, that's that's not what the tone is here. It's something that I always have to think about because I'm I do not have much of a beard. Like my beard is is quite patchy compared to most, I mm-hmm. would say. But compared to yours, it is full and thick. Lustrous even. But uh, you have a great big dick, and I don't, so, you know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's also my inability to grow hair down there. <laughs> oh, so it's an optical yeah. thing? It, it, it just looks big because there's not much to yeah, compare it to? exactly. <laughs> He's in a, a, a an alien cell. Uh, feels very, very similar to the type of cell that Riker was in in that uh, in that episode where Riker was in a play but also in jail right starting to lose track um and he's doing like a he's doing like a design on the floor and then there's a uh like a starship mine style verdion sweep and they uh and it wipes the it wipes the floor clean and he starts over i bet if you're in production on this episode you wish it were that easy to <laughs> because like i I thought a lot about this during the episode. Like when you work in a sandy environment, the yeah. continuity is a fucking nightmare because you've got people walking around the set. Yeah. Like I imagine it takes some time. Like you're setting Kalamini in the middle of the scene, you're lighting it, and then you're sweeping everything before right. you start rolling. I don't like sand. Sand and snow present a big challenge to shoot on for sure. One thing that you talk about when you're on a set that is like that is dressed, a, a set with props and things on it, is it's a hot set. Yeah. And so unless you're unless you're a prop or an actor that's actively performing something in the scene, you don't touch anything mm-hmm. because a you know, a computer screen moving might fuck up continuity from one shot to the next. And if you're like a lighting guy and you need to like get at something, like you actually like bring Bring somebody from that department over to, to like move something if you if you need it moved temporarily. Kalamini is is 
is like sitting on a hot set. He's on the hot lava. He can't touch it, but for a very specific way. Yeah. And we'll come to understand this, uh, this design that he's, he's doing, but not yet. We, uh, you know, we have him kind of shaky, uh, seeming very disoriented. And then the doors to this, to this cell open and in walk a couple of green loafy aliens, the likes of which we have never seen before. And they announced that the Agrathi authority has decided that uh, that he has reformed, that his prison sentence is up. They they say he's free to go, and he kind of he kind of you know like it, the camera cuts back to him, and he's like, "No, I don't want to. Like this is where I live. This, you know, he's he's Brooks in uh, Shawshank. You know, he like he he does not want to get a job bagging groceries in some town that he doesn't understand he doesn't you know he doesn't want to return to a, a world that's gotten itself in a big damn hurry you uh, you definitely get the sense of this later on when he's constantly asking Ben Cisco to piss <laughs> uh, you don't so need to wait. ask O'Brien you can just go <laughs> but so he, he wakes up and uh it's the room is very similar to the cell he was in, but just like a little cleaner and a little bit more, uh, you know, there's like a wall sconce that wasn't there before, mm-hmm. and it's and, and it's not sand on the floor; it's like a hard hard floor. Um, but he's been in some kind of clip show device, a clip show device in a German wheel, <laughs> like from a circus. Yeah, what do you make of this prop? This is great. I don't know. Yeah. I wondered why why the big hoop like yeah it must serve some function yeah we don't get any any exposition on what that might be though no so um yeah what's uh, and and uh, Kira is the is the familiar face that's there to to uh, welcome him back to reality and what we come to understand is that uh, the Agrathi are some kind of G quad creeps who. Uh, convicted O'Brien of a crime and subjected him to 20 years in jail via a mental simulation. So this is, he's, he, from his perspective, he's been in jail for 20 years, but, you know, it's only been a couple hours since the sentence was handed down in real time. So he's kind of waking up like a much younger man in a world that hasn't gone through what he's gone through. I really like that it's Kira in this scene. Like, what you don't get is the scene before where Cisco makes a decision about who to send to go pick up O'Brien. And I've got right. to believe that there was a lot of thought about who would be best in this role. And yeah. Kira, for having been through the shit that she's been through, like, there are a lot of similarities between Kira and O'Brien, and we don't get a lot of them together up right. until this point in the show. But great choice to send her because she is a great combination of someone who's been in the shit, but someone who is also like can be extremely gentle and, and shows great empathy for people in a way like, like her, her bedside manner with him, I think is perfect in her scenes. It's as good as anybody's and, and maybe better than anybody's yeah. compared to, I mean, cause everybody knows that he's been through some trauma and she, she maybe has like the best approach to to dealing with him. It wasn't real. It's real to me, Major. Yeah, and so she puts him on a runabout and uh, takes him back home, and he is not right. 
Everybody is aware that he's going to have some reintegration to do. We have a brief scene with Cisco and Keiko. Uh, Cisco's kind of like explaining what happened and prepping her for receiving a husband who is uh, fairly badly damaged uh, compared to the one that departed a few days ago. Keiko is the viewer proxy here, uh, instrumentally. But Miles would never break the law intentionally. I know that. Because she's asking a lot of questions and Cisco is 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 giving all of this backstory to her and us. And I guess the deal is it, that they have a sort of justice style of mm-hmm. uh, of criminal justice on Agrith, where uh, they decided that he committed a crime that to us seems like not a crime, and <laughs> they convicted and punished him before anybody knew what had happened. Uh, without rocking an ounce of knuck the entire time. It's always sad. Now doubly so. How does this not mean war? Cisco is pretty chill talking about how the Argathans just sort of put him on trial immediately and then gave him the sentence immediately without even communicating with DS9. Yeah. Oof. Yeah, I think uh, maybe like drop a couple of photons off from orbit before the Defiant uh, takes him home. It's like, hey, fuck you. I wonder if there's something to fear from them. If if the Agrathis have this sort of technology, I wonder if there's someone you don't want to fuck with militarily. Yeah, unclear because it seems like what he he was like there on a like on a friendly mission and just asked the wrong questions yeah yeah he seemed too curious and that was they took great umbrage with that (laughs) o'brien's first stop is with the doctor who actually greets him getting off the runabout chief julian and the doctor is interested in doing something to kind of unburden the chief of these memories because Nobody, nobody on Deep Space Nine thinks it, that it's fair what happened to him, and uh, and they'd like to, they'd like to take this trauma uh, off his shoulders if they can. What they need is a cybok, Ben. Share your pain with me. They need cybok to take his pain away. Yeah, where's cybok at these days? The Vulcans are very. Oh no, didn't he die fighting? Yeah, he fought God. God. His arms were. Long enough to do it. <laughs> we get uh, the way the story is told is is fairly unique for Deep Space Nine. We get we get flashbacks and vignettes. Yeah, the first flashback we get is the Doctor is asking like, "What was it like? Was there anyone there?" And O'Brien's like, "Nope, nobody was there. I was alone the entire time." Smash cut to him being thrown into the cell and like a a a McGrathy alien cellmate. Uh, Ichar being really nice to him, yeah. But uh, but you know this is one of those things where like you you got to beat the shit out of the first guy you meet in jail. I'm Caster Troy. The chief beats Ichar to death, and then the episode's over. I'm Caster Troy. For decades, we have always gotten the new fish thrown into a cell, and then it immediately being a life-threatening situation. It yeah, is, and that's happened several times in Star Trek. Yeah, uh, this is not Oz. 
you know? Like, this this is the best possible cellmate you could possibly get. Ichar does not look at you and lick his lips. Ichar, no. Ichar is not, like, doing push-ups in the corner, like, getting totally swole. Right. Ichar is, like, laughing at shit, and, like, he's affable and fun. He's got, like, all of the strategies for, you know, doing the time and not letting the time do you, and he's willing to share that. He is an emotional counterpoint to O'Brien in every way because when we cut away from O'Brien in the present to Ichar in the past you get serious dour shattered O'Brien cross cut into this other character which is not like that at all. Eat this. It'll help you feel better. And he seems like the perfect person to have to do a long stretch of time with. Yeah. The doctor finds that this these memories are not really going to be easy to to wipe away. He's like explaining to Keiko, like this is not like a chip that they installed in his head that can just be removed. Like like he he really experienced this from his perspective. Yeah. And so this is going to be something that uh, is likely to be a a long term aspect of his life from now on. They establish right away that this is not correctable. I thought it was interesting that the two characters that I wanted the most in this were Counselor Troy and Captain Picard. Yeah. Because Counselor Troy knows Miles from way back, and I felt like for all the lip service that is paid to the existence of a counselor on the station, um, I thought this would have been a great opportunity to bring a friendly and familiar face uh, back to the show. Same. And Picard actually experienced something not terribly unlike this yeah. in uh, in inner light. Like it obviously wasn't a punitive version of this, but like the idea of moving forward in life where you have a set of memories that don't didn't actually happen to your physical body, but but are real memories to you, is something that I would have loved to hear Peace do rap with O'Brien about. Picard's experience in Inner Light isn't even referred to obliquely, which is yeah. something that this show is not has not shied away from. Like this show talks about TNG a lot and the missions that they went on, specifically O'Brien's involvement. And even in this episode, they talk about three instances from TNG where O'Brien has has suffered trauma because later on, like Bashir tells Keiko, like your husband has been through some shit. But he's been through shit before, and he's come out fine on the other side. It's just going to take some time. And he uses right. those examples. Yeah. But yeah, the the memories are there to stay. Bashir yeah. says, uh, like, I could, I could wipe these memories, but I would have to wipe all of his memories to do it. And, uh, and a, uh, a ship puts in at, at, at the station with a, a passenger that says, Don't do it, chief! <laughs> I have heard tell that this doctor... Will attempt things like this from time to time. He's entirely willing to wipe a man's memory. It's like the doctor has some kind of punch card for erasing <laughs> patients' memories. <laughs> Why does he seek to do this in such quantity? Did he not swear an oath to do no harm? 
it's shocking. Like, why is this always on the table for Bashir? <laughs> Someone get Bashir away from the clip show device. Get it away. To be quite honest about it, I was in a pale. Mr. Bucket, I have to revert back to my living state. Oh, oh, I don't use the bucket anymore. It's about this time in the episode that O'Brien starts seeing visions of each other. And uh, right. it's... To the viewer at this point, it is unclear whether or not Ichar is real or a figment because O'Brien treats him as a, as a real person. Right. He's having a real reaction. And, uh, and it's, it's that thing where sometimes Ichar is, is there and O'Brien sees him in place of a person who's actually there. Like when, yeah. when he and Keiko first see each other o'brien thinks it's ichar initially but then other times like he's just like chasing ichar around the station and unable to to you know locate him or whatever right but yeah so the the fam is there is there for him and and wants to like keiko really wants to help him uh deal with this but it like he's he spent a lot of this episode in his civilian clothes and it seems like he's been given all the time he needs to to cope with this and it is a really rough transition for him. Like the, like they have like a family dinner where he's like, he's like subdividing his food and squirreling it away in a napkin. Miles, mm -hmm. what are you doing? There's a scene where he's like sleeping, sleeping on the hard floor because he's not used to a bed. There's the scene where he's drinking toilet wine that he made himself. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he goes to Quirk's bar and orders a toilet wine, and they're like, we have good stuff, too. Like, you don't have to have Pruno, Chief. And he's like, it's all I drink anymore. Quirk, Quirk gives him a Ziploc bag of Pruno with, like, chunks and a straw in it. <laughs> Gross. Worf is like, what is that? Can I have you, one of those, too? <laughs> give me give me the gallon-sized version of that, please. <laughs> a warrior Ziploc. <laughs> Wow. Uh, one of the things that this episode does best, and I don't think it's going to give away how much I like the episode at the end to say so, is the asymmetry in the relationship between Keiko, Molly, and Miles, because it hurts so bad to see Keiko and Molly love Miles and for Miles to be incapable of receiving that love in any way. Like right. it is really well done and it made me ache to see it because Keiko is so good to him and so patient and Molly just doesn't understand what's happening. Molly's a little kid and like to just see an out of control guy react like to to see someone reflect love with hate or fear is especially painful. And I thought that those scenes where we see that were particularly effective. I agree. We spend maybe a third of the episode in these memories. Yeah. There's a lot of time spent between O'Brien and Ichar. You know, like when he's filling his napkin with food and Keiko asks him, what the fuck? He, uh, like, we go back to the cell and show, like, we see Ichar, like, showing him how to, like, how to, like, ration yourself because they were starving in this, in this cell a lot of the time and couldn't, you know, the, the, uh, when the guards would be would be feeding them was unpredictable and would occasionally go they would occasionally go to long stretches of of not receiving food this is an example of a war crime 
And this is a thing that would seem actionable from the Federation, right? Yeah, it does. It is weird that it's like. But because it's imaginary, yeah, like maybe it doesn't prescribe to those rules. It's a weird gray area. Except for if the trauma is real, which it is, like he experiences the trauma as real, like that's kind of the. Yeah. Like that's that's what you're trying to prevent when you make a make an agreement about not doing bad shit like this. Yeah. Yeah, good point. So, I don't know. I mean, I guess I guess the, there are like psychological and physical consequences to war crimes. So, if half of if half of that equation is not on the table, maybe it's I don't know. Like it it, it makes you ask a bunch of uh questions like that like what and 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 why is there no like i i think going to war might be an extreme reaction to this but the federation should should be way more pissed and i wished there was an element of this episode talking about like what measures would be taken to uh you know help these uh these agrathi understand that that would not be an acceptable move going forward like, Cisco, is it just like a fool me once? Like, okay, well, we can't deal with those guys anymore. There's a there's a strange treatment of cultures here because, on the one hand, Cisco does not allow Worf to ritually murder Kern, uh, right. but he seems to be a little more forgiving of the uh, Agrathi culture in this case because it's just an embedded part of their society to to administer punishment in this way. Yeah, but strange that that's, I don't know, maybe maybe there's a whole, maybe, maybe there's a whole scene in, that's on the cutting room floor of them talking about, like, the diplomatic reaction to this. It's weird how, like, very bad episodes evoke these questions and also very good episodes. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. I mean, I think that this episode answers a lot more of the questions that it evokes than yeah. a bad episode would. Yeah. But this is that's definitely one one question that I feel goes uh, unanswered. Speaking of Cisco, he's not a major presence in the episode. No, no, not at all. I mean, he pops up a couple of times, but he's not like the. He pops up when shit gets really bad, and and then the middle of third of this episode it does because. It's not just O'Brien's inability to accept the love from his family. He starts really going off in public on yeah. uh, on Quark and on coworkers. He's sort of a loose cannon, and uh, you just can't have that. He's disturbing the peace. Everybody is is rallying to try and help him. Like Worf is trying to be like like darts buddy with him. To be honest, I don't feel much like playing myself. Well, we could go kayaking in the hollow suite. Jake is trying to help him kind of reconnect with his knowledge of of engineering by yeah. like quizzing him on what, what all the tools are in his toolbox. A combination square, a hammer, a level for hanging the pictures and stuff like that, or even a little miter box for doing a little bit of trim work. One thing I wondered during that scene was like, do the prop masters know the names of all these props? Also, like, is is an ODN coupler the same object from episode to episode? Oh, I bet. I bet that's someone's job. Because, like, they call for shit like that all the time, and, and it's never, like, what these devices are, are doing is kind of anybody's guess, right? It really is a toolbox full of dildos, though, right? <laughs> like, all of those tools basically look the same. Yeah. 
Yeah, if he uh, if he put that in his checked luggage, it would for sure get opened up because half of that shit would be vibrating. Occasionally, it's an electric razor. <laughs> Did you think that the uh, there was like a yellow shirt that that like checked his work in that one scene? That's Munez. Good as new. Oh yeah, he's back. He was from that uh, that episode where they were in the in the atmosphere of that poison planet. Remember, right when that unexploded torpedo. Went into the ship and Quark had to... Uh, had to disarm it with his little buddy. Yeah. That's a great call. Uh, it seems like he's kind of temporarily the boss and and like gives O'Brien an attaboy. I wondered if he, if O'Brien was going to like walk out of the scene and he was going to be like, Jesus, he really blew this and like fix it. Yeah. Yeah. The thing about uh, his performance, about Munoz specifically, is that there's something about his manner that indicates that but he but we don't see it like yeah he's his treatment of o'brien seems so neutral that like i was projecting something onto him that wasn't there <laughs> right yeah you're like why is he being so nice yeah yeah what's the catch what are you doing now This is where we come to understand, though, that uh, that O'Brien has not really been pursuing any kind of treatment regimen. the The agreement that he made with the doctor was that he's going to be doing like regular counseling three times a week, and um, that's kind of a lot, the, right? It is, but I think with something this heavy, that's not unheard of, you know? Yeah. Um, and, uh, and he hasn't been doing it. He hasn't been doing anything to, to process what he, uh, went through. Yeah. What he's doing primarily is telling people he's okay and he wants to be left alone. And he's often screaming those words at people. I've been there. (laughs) Uh, he explodes on Bashir for, uh, for being the doctor slash friend in this case. And uh, this, I think it's a problem that they're, that they have, such a close friendship outside of their like doctor patient relationship. Yeah. Because I think that, I think it is very common when you're having a psychological problem of some kind to react negatively to the suggestion that you get help. Yeah. Like I think somebody like, because it comes freighted with some, some kind of condescension and some, unfortunate social baggage the people suggestion want agency too right like people want to come to those decisions on their own they want to be they don't want to be told to do things yeah just generally yeah right but like you know if you're if your arm is broken you don't take the suggestion to go to go head to the hospital as as a shaming suggestion but uh but unfortunately when a psychological arm is broken it is not uncommon so yeah i don't know like i i I thought that the character stuff about like the way o'brien resists the help that is being offered to him was uh was very very true and it's about a a character that is having a realistic reaction to to something that unfortunately prolongs his own suffering right like that's that's one of the really confounding things about uh, these types of issues. 
it's a moment that makes O'Brien think of a time when he exploded in a similar way uh, in his cell at Echar. Yeah. This is the moment in the episode when I knew for sure that O'Brien would eventually kill him. At what point did you get there in your mind? I guess I predicted it when I first saw Echar. Oh, it, it was much later for me then. Just because I like the idea that he would not want anybody to know that he had had a cellmate yeah. was, and and then we find out that he has a cellmate. I uh, that was kind of, it was either going to be that he killed Echar or that Echar was going to be his his torturer, but that seemed pretty pretty clearly not to be the case right off the bat. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, and and O'Brien gets very physical with Echar and and vice versa in this scene but it also seems like you know like when you're cooped up with uh with somebody in a confined space for an extended period of time like the like that can that could be really stressful you know yeah that's why we never talk to each other off stage when we're on tour it's one of the rules we always uh go through rob yeah is there a go between yeah o'brien seeing that pruno is not on the menu uh, assaults Quark. Why don't you give me my drink? Or I'll break every bone in your worthless little body. And then sits down and has a, a real interaction with with fake Echar. You're not real. You're just in my head. And it's at that point that Echar says that uh, he's always been a figment of his imagination. But I'm real to you and that's all that matters. And this further kind of muddies the the water of what Echar is and what he represents. I mean, like, definitionally, of course, that's true. Mm -hmm. But, like, why is the chief seeing him here and now? Like, what is that? Yeah. What does that mean? And I think that the clue to this is that uh, is that line at the beginning when he's first kind of coming out of his out of his days uh, it, on on Agrath and, and one of the one of the jailers there that was part of administering this thing says like the the punishment is is specially tailored to each uh each offender like yeah and so so it seems like maybe this is an after image or even potentially still part of the punishment yeah pretty brutal yeah so uh so take the uh take the d back out there and and drop a couple more <laughs> photons off yeah i don't think they're done Uh, Cisco does reappear about this point in the story to discuss the incidents with Bashir and Quark. This is not just an isolated thing. This is now becoming a pattern of behavior that Cisco can't abide. And so he relieves him of duty and orders him into a regimen of daily counseling. Yeah. I mean, I think that the fact that it's a pattern is why. Like, I can totally understand being frustrated that a busy bartender is ignoring ignoring you yeah you don't assault that person but o'brien shouldn't have done that thing where he holds his money in his hand and just sort of flips it around (laughs) like you don't want to do that either miles yeah like the uh the strategy is like tip really well and that bartender will yeah will come find you when you come back up to the bar but like the bartender does not know it's an o'brien episode like 
you know, you have to you have to make the bartender understand it's an O'Brien episode. Pruno is also a very bartender. Right. It takes a long time to make, you know, yeah. it's like it's going to slow down their flow. A lot if, of if, ingredients. If it's, if it's a beer bar, you know, like order a beer, you know, don't 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 throw him a curveball. It's very bartender intensive. Uh, I, I understand Quark <laughs> wanting to maybe save that until after the rush. If Quark had like a waxed mustache and a sleeve garter, yeah. order the most complicated Pruno you want. Yeah. Like that's what he's there for. But yeah, but that's not the kind of is uh, that's not the kind of bar he's running. No. O'Brien is pissed. Pissed enough to throw his com badge on the ground. Yeah. And he storms into the infirmary because the reason that he sees for all of his problems is Bashir. Right. And Bashir, to his credit, maintains a very even and professional keel here. He's like, I am trying to help you. I, I understand that you're not well. Uh, but as your doctor and your friend, like, I cannot in good conscience let you, like, pretend that nothing happened to you. And this is when Ichar kind of appears over Bashir's shoulder. And, and in one fell swoop, O'Brien can announce to both of them, I don't want your help. And I don't I don't want to be friends with you anymore. Like, like they can both potentially mm-hmm. interpret that as being directed at them. Yeah, friend breakup. Pretty brutal. You don't want that. And, I mean, to a certain degree, he's also broken up with Starfleet. Like, the throwing of the com badge away signifies potentially the end of his career also. Well, it's he's broke. He's broken up with with life, you know? Yeah. Like, he is, he's fucking storming through the, the station. Like, Ichar is trying to talk him off the ledge. He, he, he goes home to try and, to try and seek refuge there, and winds up being agitated to the extent of screaming his head off at, at Molly, which is like a very genuinely frightening scene. Like, Kalamini threads an amazing needle in this episode of tiptoeing right up to the edge of familial violence while, like, maintaining sympathy as a character. Like, you understand that he he is having a bad reaction to a bad situation and that like he is ashamed of of what he does like it's a tricky scene right cuz this could this could permanently make this a hateable character right i couldn't help but think of how difficult it has to be for a child actor to do a scene like this like hannah hate has got yeah. to sit for what has to be a couple of takes and be screamed at by an adult an adult that you know in a certain context and have worked with before, but you know, like Hannah Hete is tiny. How old is she in this show right now? Like, like she's she, like four or five years old. She's young enough to where I wonder. I wonder how difficult this is to go through. Like yeah. she, she's clearly she can't be sophisticated enough to truly get it here, and that's got to be hard for both Kalamini and her. Right. It's a weird thing to have to portray on on all sides and yeah. and it is not hard to imagine that those tears that molly sheds are are real you yeah. know and that that's not a great feeling yeah to to watch like the idea that they might actually have done something that was traumatic for her 
like hopefully hopefully you get like a satisfactory conversation between Kalamini and Hannah Hate like on the set and say like what what we're gonna do is just for pretend and it's not real and you know hopefully I don't know they're child actor handlers on set like whose role is to safeguard children from emotional trauma I wonder to what degree one of those or several of those was deployed in a moment like this I wonder like the that documentary the what we what we left behind documentary yeah. One of the things they talk about is that the production schedule for this show was such that sometimes they were working like 18-hour days. Yeah. And it's always really amazing to me when I hear that about television production. I've never worked on a television show. I, I know people that have, and I know that that's somewhat commonplace. Mm-hmm. And it's a budget and schedule issue, you know, like the the beast needs to be fed. You need to get an episode done every week. So the you know the constraints are are not entirely economic but they are somewhat economic like right. if you had a lot more money you could just have 25 more production days sprinkled throughout the year and and like longer weeks to to shoot each episode and the toll that working like that must take on you as a like whether no matter what side of the camera you're on uh it's got to be pretty intense right yeah i really can't imagine that week in and week out for months at a time that's what makes me really afraid that something like a scene like this would actually have been like entered into without considering the like fragile emotional lives of the people who are being asked to do it Yeah, I mean, and I think you're saying that specifically about Kalamini because the rules are different for child actors. Like, there's no way she's on set for longer than, what, like four hours? I don't don't remember what the specific rule is, but... Right, which is why they often work with twins for little children. Yeah. Um, But, yeah. I mean, this scene is super intense. It leaves a terrible taste in your mouth, and, uh, and yet I think that it is... You, you understand in it that O'Brien is having a breakdown, and... It's a taste in O'Brien's mouth that's so bad, it can only be removed with a phaser beam. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Because O'Brien goes to a cargo bay and just, like, destroys it with a wrench, and then goes yeah. for the weapons locker in, in like, the in, in the rock-bottom moment. He's standing there getting ready to... Uh... To punch his own ticket and the doctor comes down chief and starts to try and kind of talk him off the ledge get out of here julian and o'brien says like that i'm not doing this for myself i'm doing it to protect all of you like i just i came very close to getting violent in my own house i don't feel like i'm in control anymore and i i feel like i have a track record of violence now that i can't protect you from and the doctor's like, what What do you mean, like a like a track record of violence? And he's like, well, you know, like there's Ichar, of course. And the doctor says, who's Ichar? And O'Brien goes, he's right behind you. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> because there's Ichar there in the, uh, in the cargo bay. Bashir goes for the weapons locker and is like, I'll do it myself. <laughs> <laughs> I'll finish what you started, chief. <laughs> 
I mean, it's still a figment that uh, that the doctor can't see, obviously. But uh, the conversation keeps going, and they talk about how O'Brien came to to murder Ichar. That were like very, very desperately hungry at a certain point. They'd gone over a week without being rationed any food by the prison, and I thought that this scene. The, the flashback was a little a little imperfect in my mind because O'Brien kills Ichar and then finds the the package of food that Ichar was hiding and is relieved by how much food is there uh, and is like believes definitively that Ichar was definitely saving this food for both of them but I just I didn't I couldn't quite get there I couldn't get to a point where Ichar had a secret secondary food stash that he wasn't telling the chief about and that the chief would be utterly convinced that it was for both of them in that context. Yeah, and especially because Miles seems uncertain about whether or not he'd killed Ichar when the sound of snapping chicken bones makes that fairly evident. Like, he, yeah. he, he does not seem traumatized by the idea that he just killed a person he he but this might be uh a, just a glimpse at his broken pathology yeah. like is he so is he so delirious with yeah. hunger that he doesn't really have a, a firm grip on that's how the i read it he's in that's how i read yeah. it and I then, guess that could go to explaining why he believes that Ichar was saving the food for both of them also. You're treated to just a three-minute montage of O'Brien going to town on this food. What just like eating and eating until he's he like makes himself sick. It's like the heroin scene yeah. in uh, Wet Hot American Summer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's always fun to get away from camp, even for an hour. You really want to do this here? No. Okay, okay, let's do it. Do it. Bashir, having learned of this, of the significance of this, makes the case that one moment doesn't define a life. A bad moment can't destroy a good person. And a bad bit moment can't destroy a comedy podcaster. Yeah. Boy, are we lucky that's true. Yeah. Well, a lot of people aren't aware that this is a comedy podcast. So. Yeah. I think most people would be pretty confused by that. <laughs> O'Brien. really should never have categorized this as comedy. That is not how it is under- understood in the world. <laughs> O'Brien gets it. Bashir's counseling works better than anyone's. It's smart that Bashir takes the self-hate is a is an example of your evolution tactic. Yeah. Because that's something that O'Brien is here for. He's like, oh, yeah, I do really hate myself. Yeah, because you're never going to remove the self-hate from the equation. You just need to redirect that energy into something that works. And that's what you. I hate each hour. It's what killing you made me become. Yeah. Yeah. And that works. And it makes each hour disappear. After appearing to forgive O'Brien for murdering him in a cell over a couple of scraps of food, each are very forgiving. The The disappearance seemed like dramatic enough that it felt like it might have been an intentional part of the program that the Agrathi installed in him. Oh. Oh, you know? shit, man. I didn't even consider that that was like part of his like punishment journey. Like that's part of the programming, you think? 
I don't think that the episode says that explicitly. It just I wondered it when in watching it. I would like to believe that that this show was sophisticated enough to do that. So I'm going to choose to believe it. Yeah, that's pretty great. The button on the episode is the doctor giving the chief a uh, a hypo spray. He's going to be slamming Wellbutrin intravenously going forward, and uh, and and meeting with the counselor. The idea that these memories can be extracted is totally off the table. So it's going to be about learning to live with them. But he's going to be taking something that kind of dulls the edge of that. Yeah. And then he uh, he returns home and finds a loving family that is excited to see him. Daddy's home! Daddy's home! Molly ain't holding no grudges. Yeah, they've forgiven. It would be pretty intense if she if she was, though, right? Like, he, he leans down to hug her and she says, It's not you I hate, Daddy. <laughs> it's what you made me become. Oh, no. <laughs> She just runs away screaming, <laughs> which would be an understandable reaction. Yeah. Uh, a really positive ending to a fairly dark episode, Ben. Did you like it? I did like the episode. I feel like it is an example of an episode that sets a pretty high bar for itself in terms of what it's going to try and deal with yeah. uh, like the emotional truth of what it's going to deal with is going to be pretty intense i feel lucky not to have any ptsd based psychological problems because they seem really really tough and i know mm. a couple of people that do have like that kind of you know struggle with those kind of demons and i i, I don't envy it at all uh, yeah. but i think that you can trust colin meany to to take this really seriously and give it a performance that is is very true not only to the kind of condition that his character is in but the way his character would experience that condition and uh, i think he really rises to that challenge uh what about you yeah i really agree i think it's easy to compare this episode to inner light and and turn it into kind of a black mirror inner light for o'brien mm-hmm. right and you know, Picard was so instructive about how Starfleet officers, like the stoicism of a Starfleet officer giving way to an acceptance of awful circumstances and like the breakdown that yeah. that he gave his character permission to have. And I was wondering whether or not Kalamini uh, would take O'Brien that far in that direction. And... Interestingly, he doesn't like he doesn't have the breakdown in the field of grapes after best of both worlds. Like he does not have the total collapse. Yeah. And that's because Miles O'Brien isn't like that. Like he's a soldier who's been to war in a way that Picard hasn't. And I like how hard he fought to maintain before finally breaking. Like I thought that was I thought that was true to what we know about him. I mean, I felt like in a lot of ways, this was the biggest and smallest episode of DS9 so far, like because it really exploded those feelings of, of what this kind of trauma must be like. And, but, but put it inside of maybe one of 
the most well-liked DS9 characters on the show. And the uh, their ability to do that and do it effectively, I thought, is what made it great. I'm curious about to what degree they will be able to maintain any callbacks to this episode at all. Like yeah. this being the type of show that it is, it it shows at times a willingness to do those kind of callbacks, but this has the potential to change him forever. I wonder if that's a consequence of it. Yeah, I mean, it feels a lot like the uh the time that Jordy got yeah, got abducted by the Romulans and tortured and yeah. You know, they mention at the end of this episode that episode like this is going to take like a lot of really hard work in in therapy to unburden yourself of the trauma of this or learn to live with the trauma of this or whatever. Yeah. And it's just like the next episode, he's like, hey, I'm dirty. I'm the same guy. You know what's weird is like Star Trek really wants to engage with these serious issues a lot. And I think, you know, we're at a point in society right now where therapy is destigmatized in such a way that it's like, talked about in a really great way in an open and honest way but yeah Star i think Tra- it has uh, a long way to go still sure. like, there's still plenty of people that are like you know that's great for other people but that's not me my point is that for as progressive as star trek is it only ever depicted therapy in a barclay context and barclay was in there for for social reasons in a way that i think to have sprinkled geordie into the counselor's office or Picard into the counselor's office, or in the future of Deep Space Nine, put O'Brien in counseling going forward would have been a far more progressive way to demonstrate a therapist necessity in instances yeah. like these. But yeah, it's a yeah, it's a hard thing to depict because it's it's one of those things that you know you try and go in for an hour a week and the changes are fairly incremental and that's not that dramatic of a thing to show. Yeah. Like you occasionally have the therapy session where you're shredded and ugly crying on the couch and your therapist is getting up to hand you the box of tissues. But a lot of the time it's just like trying to remember what your childhood was like or whatever. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I don't know. Yeah. a, a, A tricky thing to do. I think I, um, I think this is a great episode and uh, and a very special one. Yeah, I do too. I feel the same way. Good stuff. Do you want to uh, see if we have any Priority One messages, Adam? Yeah, let's see if any of our Priority One messages are as good as this episode. <laughs> I'm gonna, Jesus. I, I'm going to challenge them right now. Wow. Fuck. Priority One message from Starfleet coming in on secured channel. Need a supplemental income. Supplemental income? Supplemental. Supplemental. Yeah, it's extra. The interest alone could be enough to buy this ship. Adam, we have a couple of Priority One messages here. The first one is of a commercial nature, and it goes like this. If you run a web design, development, app, PR, or marketing agency, you know sales is often the hardest part. Good work is the best business development, but hope is not a plan. That Was Clutch consults with agencies to help them level up their business development practices, close more proposals, generate more leads, buy more yamak sauce. Also, a non-sequitur Row Laren mention. Because that's a sick drop, and 
we don't get to hear it enough. <laughs> yeah, fair. So please visit thatwasclutch.com to learn more and make first contact. And then parenthetically, I'm sorry. Wow. That's, that's great. A, that's awesome. I like as a semi-retired small business owner of a film production company that I never did enough to develop new business uh, with. That's the kind of business that I absolutely needed, like somebody to talk to me about what what business development could look like for a company like mine and what what I could and should be doing to to, you know, help myself grow my business. Right. Yeah, uh, That Was Clutch is based out of Philadelphia. Checking out their website now. Pretty cool. Yeah. And you get to work with friends of DeSoto to uh, to expand your business. I mean, that's the best part, them. right? Right? They know about the road drop at, at That Was Clutch. <laughs> know all about it. Do we have any other priority one messages, Adam? Sure do, Ben. This one is of a personal nature it is from favorite big brother and the spelling of favorite would indicate to me that this could be from a uh, a north of the border person oh yeah a canadian or a british yeah. uh, big brother yeah is what you're talking about yeah potentially and uh, the message is for favorite I guess australians probably spell it like that too yeah the new zealanders this one's going out to favorite whittle sister Message goes like this. Happy birthday, Whittle sister. Even though we're separated across the whole continent, I'm always thinking of you. I'm glad we can share in watching the pod and the shows that go along with it. Hope you can come visit me someday in NYC. Thanks, Ben and Adam, for the pod. It's a great watch every week. Man, I thought for sure that we were thinking Canadians. and now, And now that one of them is in NYC, it could be a, a, a brother and a sister from anywhere. Yeah, I mean, that what, both what happen this? to be on the North American continent. What is it called when you add the U instead of just the favorite with only the O? Does that have a, a designation? Is there a term for that? Yeah, I believe it's a imperial standard. Oh, yeah, this feels like stolen imperial standard. <laughs> if you're if you're coming out of NYC, huh? Yeah, unless unless you are from. Another part of the Anglosphere where they didn't change all the spellings during the Revolutionary War. Happy birthday, Whittle sister, from uh, yeah. from Ben and me, too. Yeah, from us, also. If you'd like to send a Priority One message, it's really easy. You head to MaximumFun.org slash Jumbotron. It's 100 bucks for a personal message, 200 for a commercial message, and we really appreciate them. Gotta get that, get that gold press Boy, do I love a microdose gummy from Lumi Labs. I'm, uh, I'm running low, so I'm going to head over to microdose.com pretty soon and put in another order. Microdosing is a technique I use to steer my mentals in a preferred direction several times a week. And uh, I just love it because you can really predict what is going to happen and to what degree it is going to happen because these are very low-dose cannabis gummies that uh, give you an entry-level dose that help you feel just the right amount of good. And they've been super loyal as sponsors to Greatest Trek and Greatest Gen, so I hope you will give them a try. Get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code SCARVES. It's available nationwide. 
That's microdose.com. Promo code is SCARVES for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code SCARVES. One of the amazing things about making The Greatest Generation is getting to see all of the cool, creative stuff that the Friends of DeSoto make when we do a Code 47 episode. People send in handcrafted stuff all the time, and they send in their books, they send in paintings, they send in uh, crochet work. It's so cool. And uh, I want a few more of you to have websites to direct us to in those letters. I want you to put your beautiful work on display for the world so that when we get to look at it, we can tell people where to go to get a look at it themselves. And you don't have to know anything about building a website to build a website these days because you can use Squarespace. It'll look beautiful no matter what kind of device people are looking at it on. Hell, you can even sell stuff using a Squarespace website. Don't make your cool, creative project captain's eyes only. Head to squarespace.com slash scarves for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code SCARVES to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! Most of the plants humans eat are technically grass. Most of the asphalt we drive on is almost a liquid. The formula of WD-40 is San Diego's greatest secret. Zippers were invented by a Swedish immigrant love story. On the podcast Secretly Incredibly Fascinating, we explore this type of amazing stuff. Stuff about ordinary topics like cabbage and batteries and socks. Topics you'd never expect to be the title of the podcast. Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. Find us by searching for the word secretly in your podcast app. And at MaximumFun.org. Hey, Adam. What's that, Ben? Did you find yourself a drunk Shimoda? Drunk Shimoda! Ben, I don't know if I've ever done this before. Maybe I have and I just don't remember. Maybe I have and I wanted to forget. (laughs) But... I am going Did to Bashir wipe your personality. <laughs> I'm going to abstain from a Shimoda this episode. I thought this ep was so serious and so dark that very little was enjoyable to me in the context of the selection of a Shimoda. And I racked wow. my brain about it. Like I guess I came pretty close with Quark, but Quark was the victim of an assault. <laughs> and like that wasn't a fun scene and I, I I came close to giving it to Worf for like not knowing how to play darts but still wanting to play darts like that's that's how he comforts his friend O'Brien yeah. in this case but like nothing edged close enough to 
and we've watched a lot of dark episodes before, Ben, and I've always found a way to to find a Shimoda, but I just couldn't. And maybe maybe yours will inspire me to to daily double it, but I I can't do it. I'm not gonna do it. Okay. Well what about uh, you? I guess I will either feel like an asshole or you will copy me. <laughs> I'll copy. I do you, have man. a Shimoda. What do you got? Uh I did get close to Quark, mm-hmm. but it wasn't Quark. It was the Bolian that was sitting at the bar next to O'Brien uh-huh. when O'Brien assaulted Quark. Uh-huh. Because instead of like intervening or attempting to help Quark or do anything, like this is happening essentially in this Bolian's lap. Yeah. When when Quark gets his ear grabbed and gets pulled over the bar. This is some of the fun of sitting at the bar. Like you get a lot of the of the interplay between bartender and customer, but occasionally it goes wrong. He just sits there. He just like he he, he treats it as up close entertainment. You telling like, me you wouldn't just sit there? I feel like I would be shocked enough to just sit there. I would move breakable objects and sharp things <laughs> yep. out of the way, and I would get in there. I would I would I would do my best hey, to separate uh, these uh, two men. This is this is my glass. I'm just gonna just gonna move my glass. <laughs> so uh, that bullion is my drunk Shimoda for. Uh, not not doing that that situation right, and also like the like by extension the entire like it's a it's a crush at the bar yeah and nobody does anything to help Quark like nobody lifts a finger. Good Shimoda. Well, Ben, uh, what do we have coming up on the next episode? It can't possibly be this dark, right? The next episode is season four, episode nineteen, Shattered Mirror. Cisco follows his son into a war-torn alternate universe after Jake is lured there by the living counterpart of his late mother. Oh wow, it's a Jennifer Cisco episode. And a it, mirror Jennifer Cisco. And it is dark. Yeah, it's gonna be dark. But mirror universe is like is like corny dark. Not not like deep psychological truths dark. It's like purple corn. <laughs> We get a purple corn episode. Great. Yeah. Great. How are we going to watch it, though? That's a good question. I suppose I'll head to gach.biz slash game, where our uh, legendary board game is kept, and uh, and we will find out how we will be watching it. We recently slid back down to uh, the first row of the game, didn't we? Yes. We are currently on square eight. We have a... Coco no-no and a fuck it, we'll do it live uh, close close into the runabout. Uh, those are the those are the squares we could hit potentially. All right. You're required to learn as you play. Roll. Oh man, and uh, I have in fact hit a fuck it, we'll do it live. What? Which I think is the first time. We've done this. Uh, this is uh, this is one where it requires us to live stream the recording of the show. Wow! But yeah, that will be the next episode, uh, one way or another. And I guess uh, you'll have an op- the option to watch us record it live in some way via the internet. Hey, gang! Quick production note: We already did the live broadcast of. Season 4, episode 19. Uh, We did a live YouTube the other day, and it was really fun. But, uh, you know, in the spirit of it being live and kind of uh, as we record, it was just 
available while we were doing it. Uh, if you missed it and are super intensely curious to see what we look like while we're casting pod for some reason, we do have the video saved and we're thinking about dropping it on the MaximumFun.org donors only page sometime after the episode in question drops. So sometime next week, uh, check back there and that'll probably be where it winds up living. Looking forward to it in whatever form that takes. Just as I look forward to wrapping up the show, Ben, by thanking our legion of supporters and viewers. It is because of your generous support that we are able to do this show. Uh, the folks that head to MaximumFun.org slash donate and uh, contribute on a monthly basis make this show possible. And uh, it's not uh, it's not for nothing. They get the access to all of our bonus content, of which there's quite a lot. Uh, and uh, there's... Um, even in, even when it's not the Max Fun Drive, there are prizes for uh, for becoming a monthly contributor. So uh, head to maximumfund.org/donate if you've been thinking about it and get it done right now. Yeah, don't even think about it. And by that, I mean think about it and go do it. Yeah, like think about it while you're doing. It's it. It's a statement of immediacy, is what I'm trying to say. Right. We should also thank all the folks who have left a nice review for the program on their podcatcher of choice or recommended the show to a friend. If you'd like to check out some of the great artwork that is created surrounding the show, uh, including the trading cards that Bill Tilly makes every week or the poster that JJ Lendl makes every week, search the hashtag greatest gen on Twitter. Adam's on there at cut for time. I'm on there at Benjamin AHR. Don't use Facebook. There's also a subreddit. And uh, the Wikia, where uh, all the jokes are gone into in great detail. My podcatcher of choice is Overcast, and it allows you to uh, to make and share clips of the shows you like. If you if you like a part of this show or any of the other shows that we've made, uh, share a clip. That, yeah, that helps, that's a really cool. That helps get people uh, interested in the show. I can dig cool that. Cool function. Yeah. We should thank the great Adam Ragusia who made all of the custom theme music for this show, and Dark Materia, who made the original theme song for the show, which you can hear, uh, you know, potted down, but but below my voice right now. Unclear whether or not uh, Dark Materia is a great home cook, but we know that about Adam Ragusia, and we will soon know that even better after we make uh, a delicious dinner of beef burger. <laughs> That's going to be a special ep, right? Yeah. He's probably going to, like, take our voiceover and throw it right in the garbage and do his own. Yeah. Yeah, he's... Love those vocal stylings. Can't beat it. With that, we'll be back at you next time with another great episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine and an episode of The Greatest Generation Deep Space Nine, which is clearly purple corn. It's uh, the Oaxacan-style corn, right? Yeah. Oaxacan uh, quesadilla made with a, a blue corn tortilla. You know, if if this Mirror Universe episode is confusing, you could call it a kind of a maze, couldn't you? So a, a purple purple corn maze, but maybe maybe maze like like the Native Americans called it. Yeah, that's what I think. That's what I think they could call it. Right. Well, nobody's going to hear that episode because they will hear this and realize what a fucking waste of time this show is. (laughs) 
You reach for the weapons locker, grab the dustbuster from inside, <laughs> place it into your mouth. Yeah. <laughs> MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.